this sermon, this section of Scripture, is the reason why we do a study in Revelation. Because here we, I mean, one, because here we are at the end, and we've got this week, and then next week is kind of a wrap-up as we move into Advent, but like, we're done. You made it. (laughs) Yeah, like... I don't know. Yeah, achievement unlocked. You made it through the book of Revelation. Good job. Um, but, th- but not just because we made it, but because this is the whole point. This is, this is the culmination of the whole vision. This is, this is the end. But it's not the end. It's a new beginning. The end isn't the end in Revelation, the end of the Bible isn't even the end of the Bible. The end of the Bible is just saying, here's the story thus far, and it keeps going. And that, that's, that's, the, that's the vision that we get at the end of the book of Revelation. Just as in the beginning of Genesis we have, in the beginning God, now at the end of the Bible, in the last chapters of Revelation, we have a in the new beginning, God creates again. And I think that's really important for us to grab a hold of and really hang on to. Because we were not designed by God mentally or physically or spiritually to just end. We weren't. We were designed to keep going. And if that's the case in, in this life that we were not designed for death, we were designed for life, then it is certainly the case in eternity with God. We were not designed for an end, we were designed for a new beginning. And, and Revelation 21 and 22 bring that to its fullness. And so Jesus lets us in on this big secret, which is not really a secret because God's been talking about it in the prophets all through the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, he talks about it a lot that the end is not the end, it's a new beginning. And why do we need a new beginning? Like, why do we need that? Not just because we were created by that, but why do we need to hear that right now? Why did the churches that John was writing to need to hear that in their day? For the last five chapters or so, we have been hearing this call, come out of Babylon, come out of like these places of false security, this, this false city, this false empire, this, this false stronghold of things that have set themselves up in the place of God. Okay, this is, a, this is a counterfeit empire, a counterfeit city that won't last. It makes its living on the backs of other people. It claims a lot and it can't deliver And ultimately, it will be your ruin as it crumbles. And that's a very audacious statement for John to make about Rome at the height of Rome's power. He's not doing this in 300, 400 AD when Rome's on its last legs. He's doing this at the height of Roman power when everybody would say, who on earth is like Rome? Who could possibly stand against her? Who on earth is like Caesar? Who could possibly compete with him for the title Lord and God? And John says, it's not going to last. Come out. 
But here's the thing. It's not enough to say, come out of Babylon. It's not enough to say, don't do that bad thing anymore. Okay, parents, you know this, right? I, I mean, I, talk, I just heard about this in class, okay? Like, <clears throat> don't do that bad thing for me as a kid. That was like the exact opposite. I was going, how bad could it possibly be? Let's find out, you know? It, it's not enough to keep us, and I, and, I, and I think even culturally, that's why the whole like hellfire and brimstone style of, 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 of looking at life with God never took, even though it's very valuable in saying, if you don't live like God has designed you to live, there is a consequence for that. That's very true. It's very real. It shouldn't be denied. And it's very valuable information. It will not compel people to holy living. It just won't. Why? Because what we need is a compelling vision of what is good, of the very best. That's what actually drives me to live the life of the disciple of Jesus, is that regardless of how good I've got it or how bad I've got it, I have a vision of the very best that is available for me in Christ Jesus. And that's what we have here. That's, that's what this picture is. It's a picture or it's a series of images of the very best, how it's going to be. <clears throat> and so God is working to do something new. And this is what he says in the, in the, in the heart of the, the scripture that we just read is, is look or take notice or wake up or hey you, I'm making everything new. <clears throat> and I think that idea is super important because, again, when we talk about the idea of God making something new, we, and again, we kind of talked about this in class this morning as well. A lot of times we think that what is going to happen at the end of everything is that God's going to hit the reset button and take us back to the Garden of Eden. Or maybe that we're going to wipe everything away and we're going to leave and we're going to go somewhere else. And that's not the image of what we see happening here. Okay, one, God's not hitting the reset button and taking us backward. He's always been taking us somewhere new. And what we're talking about is, is, is finally getting there to a place where God's will and my will are no longer butting heads with one another anymore. A place where he is fully present with me and a place where I am fully able to follow him the way that he created me to. But also, we're not leaving here to go there. The trajectory of the Bible has always been that heaven's moving this way. God's always been about taking the first step toward humanity. Always, right? Go back to Genesis. Who goes looking for who? After the fall. Adam and Eve don't look at each other and go, well... We messed up. I guess we better go find God and talk to him about it. <laughs> you know, God's immediately out in the garden going, where are you? Where are you? Come back. Come back. Where are you? 
And he's been doing that all throughout human history. And he keeps doing it to today. And what we have here is the picture of heaven, God's desire for us, finally overtaking and completely surrounding and completely transforming our universe. It's incredible. Hold on to that thought, because we're going to come back to the implications of that in just a second. But I want to outline what's here and what's not here. Okay, that's, that's what we're going to do, because there's so many different things in this chapter as we look at this, this new Jerusalem, this city, representing the dwell of God with man or the reign of God with humankind. Not, and I think that's amazing, not over humankind, with humankind coming down. There's all of these features that come up, and so we're just going to kind of roll through them, and then we're going to talk about the implications. Let's talk about what this new beginning looks like. So we have this holy city, this new Jerusalem coming down, everything that Babylon can't be, and it gets imagined as a place, but we're also going to see that John keeps interchanging this idea of the new Jerusalem as a place and the new Jerusalem as a people, and the new Jerusalem as a presence, as in like the presence of God. And he just kind of starts, inter- like John does this all the time in the Gospels, he just kind of starts throwing terms around, and he's like, this is like this, is like that. And you just got to kind of go, okay. He's like, I think you're smart, you can figure this out on your own. And you go, I hope so. Thanks, John. But that's what he's doing. He imagines heaven as a place and as a people and as a presence. And it's all wrapped up in this idea of the new Jerusalem. So let's talk about what's not there. He says, I looked and there wasn't any sea. This is troubling for those of us that like to fish. Because we're like, why is there no sea? What I want us to remember is that the sea is not the sea. It's, it's not the ocean. It's the depths. It's the chaos. If you remember at the beginning of creation, the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos, right? And is pulling order out of the chaos, but the chaos is still in contention with God's order. There's the way things ought to be, and there's the way things are. Well, now all of a sudden, the way things ought to be and the way things are are now one and the same. There's no more chaos in contention with God. There's no more entropy there's no more things falling apart. There's no more relationships breaking down. There's no more you gave it your best shot, but it just wasn't enough. That, that doesn't exist anymore. It's something new. It's something different. And I think that is huge, that that's the first image that we have, is that there's now nothing standing in the way of everything being exactly the way that God intended it to be. So there's no longer any sea. And then he says, there's no longer any tears. There is no mourning. There is no pain. There is no death. Again, if there's no more of that chaos, if there's no more of that contention with God, then the the outflow of those things also does not exist anymore. And there were pictures of this in Isaiah. Um, If you look back in Isaiah chapter 65, there's this verse where Isaiah says, you know, there's going to come a time where, and this one has always hit me really, really hard in the last year, there's going to come a time where a child 
will never fail to outlive their years. And he says, and there's going to come a time where the old person will not die before their time. But a hundred years will be the age of a youth. And that's, I mean, and, and that's as far as he can imagine. He'd be like, a hundred years. A hundred years is the beginning of a life well lived. And now John goes beyond that and takes it to its fullness and says, oh, a hundred years? A hundred years is just a flash in the pan. You have no idea what happens when we are created for life and chaos and entropy and pain and death are not part of the equation anymore. Those things that are inevitable pieces of our life, what happens when God takes them out for good and says they don't exist anymore? There's also, and I think this is interesting, All of, the, all of the stuff that has come, all of the plagues and the pain that have come in Revelation, God has allowed them to happen. But we don't see the personal agency of God. Like, we don't actually see him getting up off the throne and making any of this stuff happen, right? Instead, it is, there are these warning signs. There are these, there are these plagues that come upon the people when they refuse to listen. And God allows all of that, but I don't see like this personal direct agency of God. But then you get to Revelation chapter 21 and it says, and God will wipe away every tear. Do you want to know what gets God up off the throne? (laughs) Is to come and erase our pain to come and wrap us up in mercy. To come and make us whole. Where do we see God moving up off the throne in Revelation? It's to come and wipe away the tears of the nations. So powerful. So powerful. There is no temple. And and the, and the at the beginning, it's, it's just like, there's no temple. Why? Because the dwelling place of God is with his people. There's no need to have to have any intermediary access anymore to God. He's right there. And, and throughout time, we've seen God moving closer and closer and closer to humanity, right? First, he is a vision that appears to people like Abraham. And then there is a tabernacle, a tent of meeting with Moses that's kind of portable and God kind of deigns to come and be there for pieces of time. And then he says to David, okay, I I will let your offspring build me a house, a place so that you know where I'm located. And then God does something really radical. and, And through Jesus' sacrifice says, okay, now my temple is not going to be a place of wood and stone. My temple is going to be a place of flesh and bone. Now I'm going to indwell you with my Holy Spirit. But now we've got something even different than that. Now we've got an entire existence that is fully permeated with the presence of God. 
it, it flips, okay? Instead of God's Spirit coming and dwelling inside of us, now all of a sudden humanity moves into the New Jerusalem, and they're now in the place of God. If you look at the measurements here that happen later on, if you look in verse 16, it says the city is laid out by a, like a square as long as it was wide, and they measure the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000. Remember the whole thousand thing? It's a myriad. It just means really, really, really big. And the number 12, all of the tribes of Israel, all of the, all of the apostles, okay? It's big enough to fit everybody. Everybody that needs to be there is there. But then he says, it was as wide and high as it is long. Now, wait a minute. We started out with a square. Now we got a cube. What am I looking at? The Holy of Holies in the temple of God is a cube. It is exactly, it's a, it's a cube. It's exactly as wide as it is long as it is high. And that is where the presence of God was. All of humanity continually is invited into the Holy of Holies to live forever. It's not that God has to move toward us anymore. It's that he's already moved toward us and now we get drawn completely into him. It's amazing. It's incredible. Who would have thought that we could ever live like this? That's not even the same as the garden. <coughs> the garden, it was just that God and humanity walked with one another. This is different. This is our Every piece of existence is completely surrounded and integrated with God's love and His mercy and His power and His presence. It's bigger and newer and more powerful than you thought, than you imagined, than anything we've ever known. There is no need for sun or moon, not that they're not there. He doesn't say that they're not there anymore. He just says we don't need them anymore. There is an absence of darkness. There is no closed gate because there is no need for protection or there is no need for restriction anymore. There is no such thing as in or out anymore. God just is, and we're with him. And then there's this, there are no character traits or behaviors that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God. Look at 21.8, okay? And I need to talk about this a little bit. <clears throat> there is this list right in the middle. We've had this beautiful, you know, to the one who is thirsty, I will give them to drink, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. The one who overcomes will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my child. And then you drop into this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And you're like, well, that kind of messed up that image for me. That was not so much fun. What am I supposed to do with this? First off, 
I want us to realize that Jesus and John are not just randomly shotgunning immoral behavior right in the middle of this. There's a point. Okay? <clears throat> Specifically, it starts with cowardice and it ends with a liar. When you make a list in, in, in Greek writing, when you make a list, it's to highlight the first part and the last part as the things that you really need to pay attention to. And the things in the middle are an outgrowth or underneath that first part. And so what he's really highlighting is cowardice and deceit. Why is he doing that? If you remember why he's talking to these churches, it's because there is this constant pressure, economic pressure, social pressure, threat of harm, threat of death. How far do you want it to go? Okay, but there's this constant pressure for them to just roll over and be like everybody else. What's the big deal? Just be a good Roman citizen, follow the imperial court, take your pinch of incense, go to the altar, and put it in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord, even if I don't really mean it. What's the big deal? Why can't you just be like everybody else? Because to be like everybody else is to deny the reality that Christ is Lord. Either out of the fear that overcomes us because of that chaos, because of that contention, right? That chaos doesn't exist anymore in the new creation. Therefore, the fear that God can't overcome the chaos, that cowardice that comes with that, that can't exist anymore either. And the deceit, the lies, the idea that there is something that can actually stand against God or that there's something else that could demand my allegiance besides God, that can't exist anymore either. And so those things have no place in the New Jerusalem. Now this may make you, this part may make you kind of go a little bit, okay? It is not, what, let me tell you what John is not saying here. John does not say that anyone who's ever been guilty of these failings is prohibited from entering into the holy city. Because as we kind of laughingly said in class, then the holy city would be uninhabited. There would, if, if you can only be there if you've never been afraid and hedged your bets against God because you were afraid, then there would be no, the, the holy city would be perfect because there'd be nobody in it, okay? If you've never had deceit in your heart, if you've never had moments of unbelief, if you've never put up something and said, this is as important to me as God or this is more important to me than going God's way, if you've never been an idolater, okay, that, you're, if, if that's the criteria for being able to enter into the holy city, then the holy city doesn't have anybody in it. So what is he saying? He, it, what he does say clearly is nobody will bring these practices with them into the holy city. It, it, it's an encouragement to the present for the churches that are listening then, and it's an encouragement to you and me now. We can't have it both ways. We can't keep one foot in Babylon and also enter into the New Jerusalem. Like something's got to give. 
So what's going to give? Are you going to turn away and leave those old practices that belong in Babylon so that you can enter into the new Jerusalem now? Because God's not saying, I'm going to make things new someday. He's saying, I'm making everything new right now. You have to leave those things behind to enter in. And so it's constantly this process of leaving that behind so that you can enter in now more and more each day. And eventually it's going to be an eternal thing. Which also means that the other is true. If you keep holding back and you keep leaving one foot in Babylon and you won't actually enter into God's promises now, then you're going to find a point where you are stretched too thin to be in both places at the same time. And you will have thought that you could enter in and you find yourself on the outside. And for those churches that are compromising, like Laodicea and Thyatira and Pergamum, the ones that are kind of like tolerating practices and hedging their bets and, and you know, kind of doing this and that and the other just to try and fit in, it's a challenge. Those things don't belong here. You can't take them with you. You've got to leave them behind. And it's a challenge for us today, right? Those things that we keep putting our trust in, those things that, that we keep hedging our bets against, where we're kind of like, okay, I'll, I can be sort of like Jesus, but I really like hanging on to this. Or I can be sort of like Jesus, but when fear hits, I keep going back to this. You have to let it go. You have to leave it behind. You must allow Jesus to put it outside the gates so that you can enter in. And that's not just someday after you die. That's like right now. This is something we're doing now every day as Jesus is making us new. Because there's also something else that's not there in the holy city. There is no curse. Because of the redemption of God through Christ, creation has finally been set free from the slavery that it has to futility and frustration. Those things don't exist anymore. Because I, I hear what you're saying, right? Yeah, Trav, I want to leave those things behind. I really, really would like to leave those behaviors behind, but they keep following me. But they keep, uh, they keep coming back. Okay, I feel, I feel futile in my ability to let those things go, to leave them behind. They keep, they keep running after me and taking me over. I have some gospel for you today. <laughs> I have some good news. It's not going to be that way forever. It's not going to be that way forever. Every day we are getting closer to an entire universe, including you and me, that is finally set free from futility and frustration. Where we don't have to say, I tried as hard as I could, but it wasn't good enough. Where we don't have to be frustrated and say, how long, O oh Lord, how long is it going to be like this? Because that's not going to last forever. It's coming quicker than you think. I dare say you're going to meet God within the next hundred years. 
I mean, just think about it in those terms, right? hundred years may seem like a long time, but not in the light of eternity. Sometimes we get in this idea that the world is just going to keep turning and things are just going to keep going and it's just, you know, it's just kind of the same old, same old. It's going to happen quicker than you think. You're going to meet God sooner than you think. And what Scripture is trying to tell you is, yeah, that's a challenge of what am I leaving behind. But mostly, that's an encouragement. That's a hope. Because the thing is, this vision for us in Revelation is not, it's not to speculate about the future. I mean, all of Revelation is not about that, right? Like, we've said this a couple of times. Revelation is not the crystal ball of the New Testament where we're trying to figure out what's going to happen. We don't actually learn anything new in Revelation that we don't know in the rest of the Bible. We can look at the law and the prophets and the gospel. We, We can see all that already. We don't learn anything new, but we come to it because we need our imagination refreshed. We need an illustrated discipleship manual that can use images to show us how it's going to be and so how we're going to live. That's what Revelation really is. And we see a place where God is, which is not a duh statement. It's, It's that this intimacy of God now gets fully interwoven into our lives and his glory is there and it illuminates us. It serves as a focal point for everything it is a place where stuff is, the material is there, it hasn't been swept away. I know, it, I'm sorry if your favorite hymn is All Fly Away, it's a great song, it's just really theologically incorrect. Um, I'm sorry. But we're not going to fly away and leave all this stuff behind. Like, stu- I mean, there's, there's trees there, there's, there's walls there, there's rocks there, there's rivers there, there's grass there, there's streets there, there's stuff there. But it's redeemed stuff. It's, it's the material world getting made full. Our destiny is not to leave here, it's for, here, it's for, for there, it's for there to overtake here. And that should reorient us to the present. You know the other thing I love, though, about that? Because there's stuff there, there's peoples there. And I use that word specifically. There is no translation of the Bible that I have read that's got this right. I don't know why. Revelation 21.3. Okay? Now the dwelling place of God is with humankind. He will live with them. They will be his, what do you have there? is wrong. That's a plural in Greek. They will be his peoples. Okay? I don't, but see, then, but that sounds really funny and we can't say it like that, right? So we just say people. And we get the idea that there's going to be just like some homogenization of, you know, cultures and, and stuff, you know, like we're all going to look the same or we're all going to, you know, it's where we get this idea that Jesus looks like us, okay? But the image of heaven is there will be many 
They will be my people's. All the best things about culture and race and diversity, everything that is amazing about humanity that we look at and go, wow, now, imagine that fully redeemed and empowered by the Spirit of God. Not erased, not done away with, but made everything that it was supposed to be. God's vision for a redeemed humanity is so much bigger than ours. So much bigger than ours. And his creativity is there. There is this constant making things new. It's not a one-time thing. We reign with God, it says. Isn't that interesting? We work with him. We join in the internal, endlessly ongoing, creative work of God. What is that thing that you most want to do? What is that dream that you dream What would it look like if it was given eternal power and ability behind it? Can you dream like that? Because God can, and God is getting ready for you to be in that. Life is there. The fullness of that shalom. Unrestricted life is there. And the last thing that's there is God's face is there. Throughout the Bible, humanity has never been able to see God's face. We just can't handle it. At the end of the vision of Revelation, we can. God's face shines on us, and we see his face. And instead of being absolutely undone by it, We just get to sit in the glory of it and love it and live in it. Why do we have all that? Why are we given this? So what? It's not so we can speculate about the future. It's to orient our lives in the present. It's to change us now. It's to give us a compelling reason to come out of Babylon, to stop letting fear or lies dictate our actions. To stop putting our trust in acts and attitudes that are not of God and put them aside for a better vision. And it's to help us live life now in the light of eternity. It's not for us to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. Do you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? You know, well done, you've been faithful with a little thing. I'm going to give you a bigger thing. You know, well done. You did did a good job with five bars of gold. Now I'm going to give you five cities. And then, of course, there's the one person who just digs the hole and buries the gold and says, I'm just going to wait until he gets back. and, And then I'm going to give him what's his and say, here, I guarded this for you. And the master says, what were you thinking? That's not why I gave you that. I gave, you, I gave you that little thing, which is like a million dollars, you know, to get ready for an even bigger thing. What would it look like if God put you in charge of Vancouver? Seriously. With all the creativity and all the love of God, and unlimited power and ability behind you, okay? Like this is Bruce Almighty made real. What would it look like if God put you in charge of Vancouver? 
for eternity, for his glory, to steward it. What if we started asking questions like that now about our lives? How would that shape how we live life now? If we thought that what this was doing was getting us ready to reign and steward the universe with God in partnership for eternity. Because that's what it says is going to happen. How would that change how you live life now? Would you attack it a little bit differently rather than just trying to get through it? Because I confess, there are days where I just try to get through it, right? There are a lot of those days. And for those of us who have days that where we're just trying to get through, we are given this vision to help us endure. And this is, this is the last point I want to make, okay? So that's your, that's your cue. <laughs> Worship team. <laughs> it is given to us to help us endure, okay? The reunion is coming. What is wrong will not stand. What is lost will not be lost forever. What is fragile and faulty and chaotic and incomplete about this world is not going to last in the light of God's eternity. God says, to the one who is thirsty, I will give them to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life, and it will renew them from the inside out forever and ever. To the one who overcomes, they will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my child. A lot of times, overcoming and victory and conquering, it just means standing fast and living our lives and dying our deaths for the Lamb every day because we are captivated by the greater love of what is to come. We haven't seen anything yet, but we are getting closer to it every single day. And the way that this vision ends is with a call from Jesus and a call from the bride, which is his church, which says, come closer. Come closer to that reality. And that's, that's the call that you and I have from Jesus, but that's also the call that you and I are going to take outside when we get done today. We're going to go out into a world that doesn't know why it exists or where it's going, but we do. We know the why. And our job is every day to say, come a little closer. We're already getting closer than we were yesterday. Come with us. How will our lives reflect that call? How will we be drawing others in as we move closer to Jesus, as the Lord of the universe and the bride say, come.